A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Monday and plenty to get to this hour. We do begin with the news from Italy that the former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi has died at the age of 86. Berlusconi, a billionaire businessman and media mogul, was Italy's longest-serving premier. His decades in public life were marked by numerous personal and professional scandals. Much more on his complicated legacy and the mark he leaves on Italian politics in just a few moments' time. In the meantime, also offensive, intensive Ukrainian soldiers raising the nation's flag after apparently taking back territory in the Donetsk region. Kyiv reporting some early successes in recapturing Russian-occupied territory, but also fresh reports, too, of American-supplied armoured vehicles being destroyed or damaged in the process. We've got all the latest on that just ahead, too. Plus, a miracle rescue. After 40 days in dense Amazon jungle, four children found alive after surviving the plane crash that killed their mother. We'll take you to Colombia for the latest on that, too. And from Amazon amazing to bulls blazing, the S&P and the Nasdaq look set to build on last week's solid Wall Street gains. The S&P set to break through the key 4,300 level at the open today. Europe mostly higher too. Swiss bank UBS in the green after completing its merger with Credit Suisse. In fact, there's lots on investors' plates in the day ahead, plural on plates too, and they're spinning. This time tomorrow, we'll get the latest U.S. consumer price data. The U.S. Federal Reserve announcing its interest rate decision on Wednesday. We are expecting a Fed rate hike pause. Will it be a long pause, though, or a petit pause? Jay Powell set to shed some light on that too. And the ECB and the Bank of Japan are all in action this week as well. A busy show, as always, coming up. But first, we do begin today's show in Italy. Tributes are being paid and condolences sent to the family and friends of the former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi. Barbara Dow looks back over his life. The Jesus Christ of politics. The best political leader in Europe and the world. That is how Silvio Berlusconi once described himself. And without a doubt, he was a powerful political operator and businessman who sparked more than one scandal. And despite a string of legal trouble and dubious friends, Berlusconi always managed to bounce back. He made his name as a business tycoon. He owned the famous AC Milan football club for 31 years. At one point, he was the richest man in Italy. I have always been adored by those who have worked with me. First elected as prime minister in 1994, he was quickly removed when his coalition partners pulled out. But he was elected to the top job twice more in 2001 and 2008, becoming Italy's longest serving prime minister since World War II. And voters brought him back to power in 2022 as a coalition partner with Giorgia Meloni and Matteo Salvini. Charming and with a flippant sense of humor, Berlusconi's off-the-cuff remarks and missteps with protocol were often criticized. He welcomed the newly elected U.S. president in 2008 by complimenting Barack Obama on his, quote, suntan and left German Chancellor Angela Merkel waiting during a NATO summit. And his close friendship with Vladimir Putin got him in hot water after he disclosed he had re-established his friendship with the Russian president in late 2022 after Putin sent him 20 bottles of Russian vodka for his birthday. 
He later blamed Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky for starting the war, putting him at odds with Meloni. The prime minister often surrounded himself with beautiful women. Allegations of a relationship with an 18-year-old aspiring model, which he strenuously denied, triggered a painfully public divorce. And revelations about his so-called bunga-bunga parties landed him in court on charges of abuse of power and having sex with an underage prostitute. Allegations he also denied. It is absurd to think that I have paid to have rapport with a woman. Meanwhile, the Eurozone was going through a financial crisis. Italy was hit hard and the government's debt ballooned to 120% of the GDP in August 2011. The Italian prime minister promised to crack down on tax evasion and introduce other austerity measures, but it was not enough. Berlusconi lost his majority in parliament and was forced to resign as prime minister in November 2011. In 2012, he was convicted of corporate tax fraud and banned from public office. Months later, an Italian court found Berlusconi guilty on the charges stemming from the Bunga Bunga parties. An appeals court later overturned the conviction. He was voted out of parliament in 2013. Two years later, convicted of bribing a senator a decade before, but never served time since a statute of limitations timed out in the same year. Io sono innocente. At the age of 82, Berlusconi managed another comeback. He led his Forza Italia party in the European elections and won a seat in parliament. A month before he turned 86, he led his party back to power as the junior partner of the current ruling coalition. In the summer of 2020, a few weeks away from turning 84 years old, Berlusconi was struck by COVID-19 and was hospitalized for 12 days. He called that experience the most dangerous test of my life and boasted to journalists that his viral load entity of the virus was the highest one amongst tens of thousands. Few could match the one and only Silvio Berlusconi. And even though the quote Teflon Don, as he was known, was in and out of the hospital in his later years, he always managed to look remarkably younger than his years. Ben Weedman joins us now from Rome. Ben, love him or loathe him, he certainly seemed to live life in glorious technicolor. How are people reacting there? Certainly people here are sort of marking his death. Nobody's celebrating. Uh, I think a lot of people felt that he was a political leader, flamboyant with plenty of flaws. But nonetheless, he did appeal to a certain part of the Italian national character uh, that is impatient with the bureaucracy, with the high taxes. And so he really did strike a chord with many people. But the fact of the matter is he was very good at running for office. And, but when he held office, he really wasn't able to change much in terms of improving the Italian economy. In fact, during the 20 years when he dominated Italian politics, the Italian economy stagnated. Italy's debt went through the roof. So very little actually changed. If anything, things got worse as a result of his time in office. But nonetheless, uh, he did 
He was a charismatic character. There's no question about it. Uh, I attended several of his speeches, and certainly you oftentimes found yourself nodding in agreement with what he said. What he did, on the other hand, was often quite uh, to the contrary. He was very much focused on preventing any legal action against him, and there was a sort of a constant stream of cases against him during and after his time in office. And oftentimes he was he worked hard to change the laws to protect himself, to protect his personal and business uh, interests. So he, he leaves this earth with a very mixed legacy, but many Italians nonetheless uh, look fondly upon him as a somebody who sort of cut through a lot of the dusty, heavy language of Italian politics and spoke a certain amount of truth, didn't necessarily act on it, however. Julia? Yeah. G8 meetings, NATO meetings, he always managed to make us laugh. Um, one of my Italian friends described him as a consummate campaigner. It was the aftermath that perhaps didn't always go to plan. Um, ben, good to have you with us on our thoughts and prayers with his friends and family. Ben Weedman there. The Ukrainian government says its forces are gaining momentum and taking back territory amid fierce fighting along the south and eastern front lines. Key claims its troops have recaptured a string of Russian-occupied villages along the Donetsk-Zaporizhia region border. Fred Plankin joins us now live from Zaporizhia. Fred, good to have you with us. Have we managed to verify just what's been recaptured by the Ukrainian authorities and, and the forces, or is it just their word for now? Well, there's certain areas that we have actually been able to, to verify or at least geolocate where those areas are, where we've seen some videos of Ukrainian troops marching or going into villages, going into buildings in some villages and raising the Ukrainian flag. And a lot of that, Julia, seems to be happening in the sort of southeastern part of the front from where a lot of those offensive actions of the Ukrainian military have been taking place. And what we've heard is that they're sort of marching southward from those areas, apparently trying to break through Russian defenses. It's quite interesting. We haven't really heard anything yet from... Uh, officially from the Russian Defense Ministry, but there's Russian military bloggers who usually are very well informed, who talk directly to Russian units, who say that they are quite concerned about the situation on that part of the front line, and they also say that in that area the Ukrainians are advancing. Nevertheless, there do seem to be some significant losses also on the part of the Ukrainians. The front line is, of course, very long, and in some places the, Ukrainian, uh, the Russians have said that they have been able to hold Ukrainian advances up and destroy a lot of armor, including Western-donated armor, speaking about Leopard 2 main battle tanks provided by the Germans, but also, for instance, open-source intelligence indicates some 16 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, of course, provided by the United States. That's a large chunk of the vehicles that the Ukrainians got from the, from the U.S., so... It seems as though the Ukrainians are making gains, but those gains certainly are coming at a price. And, you know, the big question on the ground, of course, has been whether or not this is really the big counteroffensive that the Ukrainians have been talking about. Certainly there were some indications by the Ukrainian president this weekend. However, there was also a video that was put out by the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency here of this country where he was just sitting in his chair for several seconds and then a sort of writing came on the screen saying, plans love silence. So the Ukrainians continuing to say... If this is the big offensive, they certainly aren't willing to talk about it. But it is pretty clear, Julia, that along pretty much the entire front line here in Ukraine, the Ukrainians have the initiative, while the Russians aren't making any gains really significantly in, in, in any areas that we can see. If we look, for instance, at Bakhmut, which, of course, is a town that has seen a great deal of fighting over the past couple of months, 
there also the Ukrainians right now are saying that they are the ones who are making significant gains on the battlefield, while the Russians are the ones who are pulling back, Julia. Mm. But to your point, certainly the Ukrainians not giving any further information about, away about what's going on. Um, Fred Plekin there in Zaporizhia for us. Thank you. Now, call it a case of crude reality. Goldman Sachs today slashing its price target for oil this year by some 10 percent. Goldman's is gloomy on growth slows in China and the eurozone enters recession. Goldman's also fearing a supply gut, even as Saudi Arabia cuts production. Oil, you can take a look at what we're seeing in terms of price action lower, down by uh, what, more than 2.5% for Brent, down more than 3% for crude in the US. Anna Stewart joins me now. The stand-up for me on this and the reality check actually is the resilience of Russian oil supply despite mm-hmm. efforts from the West to, to restrict and stem it. Yeah, because we have the supply side issues and the demand side. And the supply side issues here are really interesting. And it's worth noting that Goldman Sachs actually raised their price forecast for the end of the year only in April. So just two months ago from $90 to $95 a barrel. They are slashing that on the supply side. They see huge beats from sanctioned countries like Russia, Iran and Venezuela. According to this report, they say Russian oil supply is nearly back to where it was before the invasion of Ukraine, despite so many Western companies refusing to buy it despite the price cap and so on. The fact of the matter is there are still buyers for Russian oil, particularly, of course, India and China. But I have to say, undershooting the compliance for too long does risk the ire of Saudi Arabia. So that may well rein it in. You've also got strategic reserves, particularly, of course, the US. That has also fed into the supply side issues. And on the demand side, you can point to slowing economies, recession fears. You can even look to concerns about China's economy. And there's a separate note, actually, from Goldman Sachs over the weekend looking at the impact of China's property sector. But also, we are in a high interest rate environment. It's just less of an investment lure to actually hold oil right now. And we've seen a lot of destocking. Goldman Sachs does see the price of oil rising next year. They're citing rising emerging market demand, slowing U.S. supply, OPEC cuts. But they're still cutting their price forecast for next May, which was at $100 a barrel, now at 93 Julia? Yeah, elegantly done. It's a mix of the supply side and the demand side here, and it's how the two things interact. Um, They're playing whack-a-mole there over at Goldman Sachs. I think that's the third revision, isn't it, in six months? Um, Keep me busy. We'll keep on top of it. Well done, Anna. Thank you. Anna Stewart there. And in U.S. politics, former President Donald Trump is traveling to Miami today ahead of his arraignment in the classified documents case. He's expected to meet with lawyers and discuss forming a new legal team based in Florida. Now, coming up... Innovation in the classroom with artificial intelligence. The co-founder of one of the world's largest education tech companies, Byjuice, joining us to discuss how its new chat GPT models will transform learning. And from ed tech to environmental regeneration, we'll talk to the CEO of Flash Forest about reforestation efforts using some high-flying technology. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. ChatGPT, OpenAI's text-generating chatbot, has taken the world and classrooms by storm. With its ability to write essays, code and take exams, it's no wonder that authorities around the world are grappling with whether it's better to use it or ban it. But what if you provide online education like our next guest? Bangalore-based education company Baiju's came became India's most valuable startup in 2021 as demand for online classes surged. Its flagship product, Baiju's, the learning app, has more than 100 million registered students. Well, last week it launched three new AI models, Badri, MathGPT and TeacherGPT. Badri detects potential learning difficulties, MathGPT solves math problems, and TeacherGPT serves as an assistant giving students personal guidance. At a time when lots of schools are banning ChatGPT, Baidu says its tools help transform the learning experience, not take it away. Now joining us is Divya Gopalnath. She is the co-founder of Baiju's and she joins us now. That was a lot of dashes and acronyms, so I apologize for stumbling around a little bit there. Um, welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome to the show. Um, for our viewers that might Thank not you. remember our conversations or, or what your platform offers, just in your own words, what the platform is, who uses it and what you offer. Yes, so today we are proud to serve 150 million students and working professionals across the world. Uh, from apps and uh, services and classrooms. So we've been able to help students learn better, fall in love with learning. So we serve students from ages four all the way to 40 and beyond, from early school, preschool, all the way up to upskilling and test prep. We are core educators. Uh, We've launched our company in 2011. And uh, all along the way, we've used technology to positively disrupt everything that we do, uh, to move from thousands to millions, to ensure that learning is personalized, engaging, and effective. Okay. And then we had the pandemic and the wave of people going from sometimes using online education to supplement what they do to suddenly that being the primary for for many people around the world. How did that impact the number of people that both use the platform, but also subscribe to the platform? Because those are different numbers. Yes. So just to put it in terms of numbers, prior to the pandemic, we had 50 million students on our various platforms. But post-pandemic, during and post, we've added 100 million more. So today we have 150 million students and working professionals on our various platforms. What the pandemic did was that it showed how online learning could be an integral part of mainstream learning. But it also showed that the future of learning is not necessarily completely online. It's actually a blend of offline and online learning. 
the hybrid model is something that we've also experimented, scaled uh, in in India, where we've launched 300 hybrid learning centers over the last one year. Yeah, incredible. So let's talk about the um, artificial intelligence impact of what you're doing, because as we've said, you're digital. You can't escape this. The, the hope is that you can enhance the product that you're offering. Just explain how the user experience is going to evolve and is already with what you've announced and are adopting. Yes. So with Baiju's Wiz, which is the suite of AI um, transformer models, two of which are powered by GPT-4 does, is that we've seamlessly blended the brilliance of artificial intelligence with the guiding touch of experienced educators. So our dedicated team of passionate technologists and AI researchers, they've tirelessly trained these models on the billions of touch points of our vast and diverse student base. So we meticulously aligned every aspect of our content with established curricula, ensuring I would say a perfect harmony between our AI models and the existing educational framework. So over the past one and a half years, we've trained you know, various large language models like GPT-4. And what sets Baiju's Wiz apart now is its unrivaled hyper-personalization, which means that every student who uses our various platforms would learn in, in, a, in a way which is suited to them as per their style, as per their size, as per their pace of learning. Mm. Our eagle-eared viewers will recognize, because I talk about this a lot on the show, the difference between ChatGPT 3.5 and ChatGPT 4 in terms of accuracy and a reduction in some of the crazy hallucinations is vast. So it's interesting to hear you talk about ChatGPT 4, which I think is crucial. You talk about an accuracy rate of, of 90%, and you also mentioned the word training. How many people trained the data that's going into the, the models that you're using? Because the training is key, and that's lots and lots of people. I guess I'm getting to the cost of all this, Divya. How have you achieved this? So I would say more than the people, we've also used the right tools. So just to be clear, it's not the large language model that does math. It's the Baiju's tools that do math like companies like GeoGebra, which we had acquired. So if I had to put a cost to this over the last one and a half years, it would be close to $100 million, including the acquisitions that we've made that has gone into training these models to ensure a very high accuracy. So close to 90% is a, is a very, very good accuracy to ensure that uh, the students are going on a hyper-personalized journey as per their style. I mean, that's a huge investment in artificial intelligence. Are, are you profitable? I know it's difficult in your, you're still in growth mode, you're investing like crazy into things like artificial intelligence. Are, are you profitable as a business? We have multiple, I would say, uh, streams running under Baiju's. So we have the apps, uh, the Baiju's learning app, which is profitable, but the investments are heavy in the future, which is like AI. The investments are heavy in our hybrid mode of learning, which is Baiju's tuition center. And we also have sub subsidiaries in India like Akash Baiju's, which are already doing well and cash flow positive. So it is a mix, uh, I would say, but wherever we've launched the product some time ago, all of those are positive, uh, profitable, but then there are investments being made in future products, which we hope to be profitable very soon. <laughs> You're working on it. Um can you imagine a situation yep. where this replaces teachers? And do you understand why some school districts, whether it's in the United States or countries around the world, are saying, OK, we have to ban this. It's effectively cheating. We can't control it. Is that a mistake in your mind? And can it be better controlled and quite quickly? On the question of tech and teachers, for me, it's never been tech versus teachers. It's always been tech and teachers. 
And for this, I speak as a teacher myself. When I started at the age of 21, I know that if I had a tool which would help me, give me feedback, categorical feedback on how I could improve, I would be a much better teacher, much faster. So what all our AI models do is that they not just enable students, they also enable teachers. These kind of tools in the hands of the teacher can help them teach better, can help them give feedback in such a beautiful way that they would be able to help a child understand exactly how they can do better. So if anything, it's making them stronger. And just to put it in terms of numbers, over the last one and a half years, we've employed 25,000 teachers, most of them women teaching from home to the rest of the world. So if anything, tech has actually enabled teachers. See, what you say of technology, the opposite is also true. And I'm a strong believer that as long as you control tech and it doesn't control you, it's fine. I love that. It's not tech versus teachers. It's tech and teachers. We need you perhaps to um, send a message. Would you agree, though, very quickly, it's, it's different doing this digitally to being in person in a classroom and being able to control this in some way? Do you accept that difference or you say no? You can say no. I see that, <laughs> I see that it's best used in a blended format. I yeah. would say that uh, learning is a blended experience. Learning is a holistic experience. You need the, the, the touch of a teacher, either physically or virtually, helping a child, mentoring a child. And then you need technology to aid them, which could be either online or offline. I come from a world where we started in a completely offline model. And then we moved completely online. Today, we have even hybrid products. So we've seen it all. And we've seen the benefits of all. So I would say there is a child who deserves to learn in a style that suits them the best. Some children would prefer complete online learning. Some would need the offline touch of a teacher. And some would thrive in the hybrid format. We should let them take the call and put them in the driver's seat. Oh, my goodness. I have loads more questions for you. You're going to have to come back soon and we'll talk more about the business itself. But for now, great to chat to you. Thank you. Um, the co-founder there of Baijus, Divya, great to chat. Thank you. More first move after this. Welcome back to First Move with a look at what's going on in stock market action. The Wall Street Bulls enjoying a June jamboree, a lot riding on this week's Fed interest rate decree. A pause, not a pivot, we will likely see. Plus meetings of the BOJ and the ECB. On Wall Street today, the major U.S. averages are up by a modest degree. Look, I'm still going. They all closed in the green last week, too. And as we mentioned earlier, big Wall Street tests just ahead with U.S. inflation data out tomorrow. And, of course, that Federal Reserve rate decision on Wednesday. Stocks in the news today include Tesla on track for its 12th straight day of gains. Shares were up some 14 percent last week and they're up almost 100 percent year to date. Shares all charged up on a new EV charging partnership announcements with both GM and Ford a couple of weeks ago, too. And today's developing news from the banking sector, according to a joint release from both parties, J.P. Morgan Chase, the largest U.S. bank, has settled a class action lawsuit by victims of Jeffrey Epstein. The victims had accused the bank of enabling sex trafficking by the deceased financier when he was a client. And Facebook facing new allegations of gender discrimination in job advertisements. Human rights groups in Europe claiming the platform targets users with job postings based on gender stereotypes. They say ads for preschool teachers, for example, are shown mostly to female users. Claire Duffy joins us now. Claire, this was great reporting. The message here is that certain demographics, therefore, are shortchanged on job opportunities because the algorithm 
chooses who it's targeting and some people miss out. Um, how is the research conducted? Right. So, Julia, this UK nonprofit Global Witness bought job advertisements on Facebook for real open positions, and they targeted all adult users in seven different countries. And what they found, as you said, is that often these job advertisements are targeted by Facebook's algorithm to users based on historical gender stereotypes. Now, just to give you a sense of what this looked like in France, for example, 86% of the users who saw a psychologist job ad for psychologist job ad were women. 93% of the users who saw a preschool job ad, preschool teacher job ad were women, but just 25% of the users who saw a pilot job ad were women, and 6% of the users who saw a mechanic job ad were women. And what these human rights advocates are concerned is that this is sort of reinforcing existing workplace disparities and making it hard to make progress in some of these industries that have historically been occupied by mostly one gender or the other. And it's sort of an issue of you don't know what you don't see. These users who aren't seeing these job ads probably don't even know that they're not seeing them. Yeah, so as you said, it reinforces the the stereotypes. What are Facebook saying about this? So Facebook has previously made some changes to address some of these concerns. The company no longer allows employers to target one gender or the other with job advertisements. And the company also says it is working with experts across academia, human rights groups, and other disciplines on the best ways to study and address algorithmic fairness. But these advocates say, look, this isn't enough, that this algorithm is actually undermining some of these efforts by not allowing users or or employers to target certain genders. The algorithm seems to be doing just that. And these advocates now want authorities in Europe to to investigate this. Yes, watch this space. Claire Duffy, thank you for that. Great reporting. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a mission to accelerate reforestation after wildfires. How one company is using drones and other technology to replant trees quickly and accurately. That's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to First Move. Emergency workers in Canada continue to fight more than 400 wildfires across the nation. Last week, thick smoke from massive fires in Canada drifted over large parts of the United States. Remember this? Triggering numerous alerts about poor air quality. Then places as far away as Greenland, Iceland and even Norway felt the impact. Now, with Canada experiencing what's likely to be its worst fire season on record, one company's gearing up for the reforestation efforts. Flash Forest is using drones and tech like artificial intelligence to replant trees and regenerate areas devastated by fire. It says it brings new levels of speed and accuracy to the jobs of restoring forests. And joining us now is Flash Forest co-founder and CEO Bryce Jones. Bryce, fantastic to have you on the show. We'll talk about what you do as a company first, but just start by explaining and tell me what you think of what we're seeing in Canada and why it's so virulent this year. Hi. Uh, yeah, so th- thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, so what we are seeing right now in Canada is uh, un- unprecedented scale of wild- wildfires in Nova Scotia, in Alberta, um, and in other provinces. Um, 
it does it does seem to be uh, getting worse and worse, kind of exacerbated every year. Um, this is obviously largely due to climate change, but there are other factors here that um, increase the the scale and severity of wildfires, including forest management practices as well. Um, but this is a particularly severe year. Yeah. And this is where you get to work, Bryce, because this is the point. You begin the process of sort of analysing the area, understanding how quickly you can replant trees. And I believe you're already looking at some of these areas now to see what you can do in, in 2024. So the turnaround is incredibly quick. That is correct. Yeah. So we're actually, I'm, I'm doing this today. I'm doing outreach in, in Nova Scotia, in Alberta, uh, to be planting these sites within the next uh, within the next planting season, which will be next spring. Yeah. And explain the technology behind how you work out what to plant where and, and how you actually go about replanting physically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so our technology is, uh, it is drone-based uh, reforestation technology. And um, so we are really focused on accelerating reforestation, doing this from the air. Um, and drones is really the best way that we that we can think of doing this, specifically in post-wildfire areas. Uh, we have seed pods. Each pod has a, uh, has a tree seed in it. And uh, these are designed to enhance germination, enhance the survival um, of these little seedlings when we plant them. And then we essentially fly over a post-wildfire area. We can access this remote, remotely. Um, and when we fly over this post-wildfire area, we can uh, plant these pods at a very high rate. So we're actually shooting these pods into the soil, into the ground. And, um, and by doing this, we can increase the germination rate um, and we can essentially accelerate the rate of reforestation um, and bypassing the safety risks. Planting in post-wildfire areas is inherently dangerous. Yeah, so doing this with drones actually prevents requiring humans to get out there and, and perhaps going in what is pretty treacherous and dangerous territory. Um, what, what is the, the rate upon which these actually germinate and then grow? Yeah, so that, that really depends on the, uh, on the species and the site that we're planting. Um, but we are selecting sites that have, uh, that for us have historically had the highest germination rate and survival rate, um, but are still uh, affected by severe wildfires. So in Canada, there's a range of uh, ecosystems and biomes that we can plant in, but we're focused on planting areas that are hit by high severity wildfires and that we've got a lot of data that has proven out uh, successful germination using our technology. And so um, it really depends on a site-by-site -site basis, but uh, we have collected the data, we have done projects in these areas before, and then we determine how many pods per tree we need um, in order to, to hit the seedling density that we want, to hit the stocking standard that we want. So we generally plant at 1,500 uh, seedlings per hectare, 1,400 or 15 per hectare, um, and uh, we determine internally how many seedlings we need. Uh, but this rate is improving every year. We're constantly doing R&D on the plant science end and then on the engineering end as well um, to ensure that we uh, plant as efficiently as possible. Yeah, I see. So this is the science behind it. You map the region, you understand which species perhaps will survive best in a certain point and the distance between them in particular too, to understand sort of what, what the best rate of access will be and growth, I'm assuming too. How much more efficient is it is doing it like this versus human replanting, which I'm sure has been done in the past. How much more ground can you cover over what time period? Yeah, uh, so, so great question. Um, and first of all, I'll say that we have, we have huge respect for human planters. It is crazy work that they do out there. Um, and we absolutely need them. Um, 
So human planters plant in the post-harvest industry. Uh, what we're doing is post-wildfire reforestation. And um, post-wildfire reforestation is actually, um, it is it is very, uh, it's not very common for humans to go in there. They're very focused in the post-harvest industry. It's very dangerous. Um, and so when we get in there, we can do remote site access. Um, but in terms of, of efficiency, um, we're planting at about nine times the rate of human planters right now. So um, on a per tree basis, on a per value added person in the field, uh, we can plant at about nine times the rate of, of human tree planters. So that, that gives you wow. an idea for efficiency. Yeah. And what about relative cost? Um, there are kind of inherent initial costs, kind of initial capex that we have on you know, our pod production systems, on our, on our drone systems, on the field uh, logistics management and stuff like that. Uh, but there's economies of scale. And so we, we really tap into that as we start scaling the company and automating our processes. So our seed pods, every single seed pod um, contains one tree seed, uh, but we are automating this entire process. We're about 90% automated right now, where we're leveraging a lot of machinery um, to produce these pods. We're almost producing about 500,000 of these a day. Um, and then um, as we hit economies of scale, you know, over the next few years, uh, the price drops significantly, and then we see, um, we see a reduction in cost that'll bring us cheaper than uh, conventional reforestation. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, you and your team are doing great work, and we'll, um, we'll stay in touch and keep the conversation going. Looking forward to the scaling up process. Um, Bryce, great to chat to you. Thank you. Okay. Bryce Jones there, Thank the you. CEO of Flash Fires. Thank you. All right, coming up here on First Move, survival against all the odds. Four children lost in the Amazon for 40 days, found alive. The details next. Welcome back to First Move, and this is a unique story. Stanford University researchers are tracking the movements of some very poisonous South American frogs by putting them in trousers. Yes, you heard me right. CNN's Linda Kincada shows us. They're studying how the frogs navigate and the stylish look, just a bonus. Why would scientists put pants on a frog? It turns out it's a good way to track where they're going. These poison frogs from South America are some of the most brightly colored frogs in the world, but they're dangerous to touch. Measuring a mere two to four centimeters in length, their skin secretes toxins that can paralyze or kill a predator. Stanford University biologists wanted to learn more about how male and female poison frogs navigate. So they trekked to the tropical rainforests of Ecuador and French Guiana to study three different species. So to study any behavior in the field, first you need the ability to find the animal, observe it and follow it around. And we have these tiny tags that we attach with the little silicon waistbands, little harnesses, handmade. There's a lot of little sewing um, exercises to fit these frogs. When we need to observe their behavior or know where they are as they move, we have the signal from the antenna and we come find them and then we can record their location, we record their behavior. The team wanted to explore the role sex plays in navigation, something that's been studied in rodents, but never in frogs. What's interesting for us, they have very uh, complex parental behaviors. Um, so males or females, depending on the species, transport their tadpoles on the back. Tadpoles are first on the land, and then they need to move them to water. 
Um, so one of the parents will pick up the tadpoles and then navigate through the forest pretty far distances. In our study, we have one species where females do the job and run around more. And we have two species where males around, run around uh, and move more. In the end, the team got a mixed bag depending on the species. In some cases, the female frogs navigated more quickly and accurately than their males. The male frogs from all three species tended to explore more. And if you're hoping to catch a glimpse of the fashionable frogs, you'd be out of luck. The researchers removed the pants from the frogs and released them when the study was over. Linda Kincaid, CNN. I was about to say, those are some very skimpy trousers there. I think we'll call them underpants and um, no frogs were harmed in the making of that either. All right, celebrations in store in Manchester after Manchester City won the Champions League for the first time. They beat Inter Milan 1-0 on Saturday, completing a historic treble of trophies. There will be an open-top bus parade in the city later today. And Darren Lewis joins us now. Darren, yes, the celebrations are warming up. I'm sure there were a few celebrations over the weekend as well. But it's only really half the city that gets to celebrate. Uh, well, absolutely. For so long here in Manchester, it has been the red half that has been celebrating. Obviously, those years under Sir Alex Ferguson, that treble in 1999, and the dominance for two decades under the esteemed Scottish manager. But Pep Guardiola has changed all of that five Premier League titles in the last six years, and now the Champions League. Now, just to give you some context, in 1999, when United won it, City were in the third tier now they are the kings of europe with united trailing in their wake so yeah they're going to have a party today and you may well be seeing behind me some of the sky blue shirts that are pouring into the city center if i go to my left hand side julia i'm going to get my cameraman to pan around you can see that van over there and the green hoarding well on the other side of that is the stage that they are building for the players and pep guardiola to come out and celebrate with the fans here this afternoon. Now, Pep Guardiola has been pictured this morning outside Harvey Nichols, where he took pictures. Oh, obviously, other department stores are available, <laughs> uh, but he's been taking pictures uh, with fans today. He's been out and about in the city. The players have been partying. They've been uh, in Ibiza, some of them. Others have come straight back to the city. But all of this city centre will be a sea of sky blue this afternoon. There'll be music, there'll be dancing, there'll be uh, cheering uh, and I think there'll be a few sore heads in the morning but the party is probably only just starting. I was about to say they are just getting warmed up it's definitely going to be a a true blue day there. (laughs) Can we also talk about Lionel Messi please because um, on the show on Friday we were talking about the Miami mayhem and the fact that he's going to be heading to Miami and the excitement there. (laughs) Nothing compared to the mania that he faced in Beijing over the weekend. (laughs) Yes, the outlet Global Times reporting that the Argentina side barely able to get out of their hotel. They've been mobbed. Argentina play Australia in Beijing uh, on Thursday and everybody wants to get a piece of the man who spearheaded his country to a fairy fairy tale uh, World Cup final success. And of course, were there in December. And 
how often do you get the chance to see Lionel Messi, the world's greatest player, the man who might lift an eighth Ballon d'Or, the prize they give to the best player in world football this year. It is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So many people taking that chance. I've got to tell you, some of the tickets have been going for up to four times their market value, such as being the demand to see him. They obviously want to see the rest of the team as well, but Messi, the greatest, one of the greatest of all time, they've got to get a chance to do. I'm sure you and I would do too, wouldn't we, Julia? Of course we would. Absolutely no question. <laughs> and from the messy mania in Beijing to what's going to be a messy day, I think, in Manchester. Enjoy it, Darren. It's I going think to be a you got one. that right. <laughs> <laughs> Darren Lewis there. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, and we're learning more details about an incredible story of survival. Four children, siblings, aged 1 to 13 years old, were found alive in the Amazon jungle 40 days after the small plane they were travelling in with their mother and two adults crashed. Sadly, all the adults were lost in the accident, forcing the children then to fend for themselves. The children's father says they were able to survive because of their upbringing as Indigenous people and their connection with nature. We are indigenous people. I believe in the jungle, which is our mother. And that's why I've always kept the faith and would say that both the jungle and nature have never betrayed me. The children are now recovering in hospital. And that's where we find journalist Stefano Posibon from Bogota now. Stefano, I get goosebumps every time I read about this story. And it's been a number of days now. What an incredible, incredible survival story. What are people there saying and, and how are the children doing? Yes, it's just a, a, an amazing story, no matter how, how you see it, Julia. It's great, actually, to be here in front of the hospital where the kids have been staying since uh, Saturday morning. Just to have a, a catch, uh, we, we were able to speak, just as easy. so, with the father yesterday, and uh, today we were able to speak with uh, an army general, an, sorry, an Air Force general, who led the operation to rescue them. And uh, there is a, a good feeling, a, a general good, good feeling about, about this story. One thing that the general told me that I think it's worth pointing out is that the kids walked for about 20 kilometers in those five weeks they stayed in in the jungle um, and that at some point the GPS evidence shows that they stayed the, the, the search and rescue operations were so close about 100 to 150 feet from the kids and they couldn't find them because the terrain the vegetation the rainy season made the search so difficult. The general said that, that uh, their team on the ground had a visibility of about 30 feet, that's about 10 meters, and then uh, that's why it took so long to find them and he was just uh, very, just very happy that at the end, uh, after 40 days, uh, they were found uh, all alive in the jungle, the four of them. It was it's, just great. Yeah, I mean, and also to your point, actually, those that were searching for them and coming so close and not finding them, but even after 40 days, not giving up. And I remember seeing an interview with the father weeks ago and him saying that, you know, he, he fundamentally believed they were alive and that they could survive this. Just an incredible story that they never gave up and they searched till they found yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, Julia. And, uh, and it's also a remarkable story, uh, frankly, 
as a reporter here in Colombia, normally indigenous people and men in uniform, uh, especially in the, rainy, in, uh, in the rainforest, they don't get along really well. But here they joined forces. There were about 130 special operation forces, commandos from the jungle that traveled to the area and about 70 to 80 indigenous guides from the local communities of the indigenous people of the rainforest. They worked together and in fact to this day we don't know who actually found the kids first because all the, all the, the, the teams were mixed with military and indigenous. It was just as if the country came together to find them. It's just great. Julia? It's giving me a frog in my throat. Um, yes, a team effort. Thank goodness they're alive. Um, Stefano? Great to have you with us. Thank, Thank you for that. And finally, I want to leave you with some stunning time-lapse pictures of one of the Philippines' most active volcanoes. Nearly 13,000 people have now been evacuated from their homes. As officials say, Mount Mayon is spewing sulfuric gas and lava on the southeastern part of Luzon, the nation's largest island. Authorities have set up a six-kilometre exclusion zone and warned of rock falls, landslides and flying debris incredible pictures we hope everybody there stays safe and that's it for the show connect the world is up next and i'll see you tomorrow quality sleep is essential and that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs so you can choose what's right for you whenever you like need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature quiets their snores sleep number does that sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.